I am so thankful I don't have to date anymore. How's that for a lead-in for a sermon? I am so thankful my wife said yes and I'm out of that game. There's no doubt. I mean, I, my dating life is a complete disaster. There's no way I can handle swipe left, swipe right. I'd be just lost. It just would not work. I cannot relate. This talk will reveal that I could not date now. I mean, it was, it was bad. In fact, I so relate to like the characters in the Big Bang Theory. If you've ever watched that show, that show gave my soul vindication because I was some of those guys. Particularly Leonard, who took like the nine-year wear-down-the-girl theory approach. <laughs> I'll be her friend until she submits, kind of like one of those deals. In fact, that was the thing. I, I would have these, when the girl would give you the breakup lines, like what are the breakup lines, right? It's not you, it's I just need my face. Yeah, and my favorite, the one I took literally all the time, we can still be I took them at their word on that. We can still be friends. Cool. When are we hanging out again? <laughs> you said we could be friends. Because I had this ulterior motive. It was the Leonard theory. If, if I stay in her orbit, even if it's in the friend zone, then eventually she'll wake up and realize I'm better than all the other dudes. And she'll still come back. And that was the way I operated. I had, we would spend time, and they would, there was at least one or two girls, poor things, that actually agreed to the whole continued friendship thing. And so we would spend time together, we'd do stuff together. It was always awkward, especially when they came to you for relationship advice. And you had this like, I need to give good advice here, but it works against my purpose for being here. If I give them the right advice, they'll stay together. But my goal is to not see them stay together. That's awkward. So I would go through all these motions. I would be in this friendship with a whole different reason for being in the friendship. It was purely to manipulate, purely to continue to be this really good friend that they would someday realize, hey, this is the right guy for me. He's been faithful through all these other disasters. I'll settle for him. You know, I don't know what my theory was, you know, but it was bad. And so I would do all this stuff for all the wrong reasons. I would go through the motions for all the wrong reasons. And it's fun to poke fun at my own dating self. Like I said, I am so blessed to have Charlotte say yes and be loyal to me because I don't have to figure this stuff out again. You know, it's like, that's God's grace in my life. I love you, dear. Don't ever leave me. Um, you know, like, because <laughs> it would be a disaster. We go, but this, this is true not only of our romantic relationships, honestly. It's a little true of our relationship with God. In the sense that we know what it means to be in a relationship with God. And we do some things that we're supposed to do because we're in a relationship with God. But we're doing them for all the wrong reasons. We have ulterior motive. And we're not trying to date God. That's, not, that's where the illustration breaks down. But we keep the friendship going. We keep the relationship going by going through the motions and doing certain things spiritually because we really want something different. We think that if we do... Whatever God asks us to do, that God will give us what we want. If I stay this girl's friend for long enough, eventually I'll get what I want. If I do everything God's asked me to do for long enough, then when the, iron hits the, when the rubber hits the road, iron hits the fire, I'm mixing all my metaphors. When everything hits and I need God, of course He'll come through because I've been here and I've been faithful. I'm here to tell you that is all the wrong reasons. 
Look at Isaiah chapter 58. I'll give you a little historical background while I'm turning there. King of Israel, King, Israel had some good kings and some bad kings throughout the, first, the Old Testament. Kings that were loyal to God, at least for a season, and they'd fall away, and then Israel would get punished by a higher power, and all this stuff would happen. And every king had a different approach. He had good kings that did what God wanted, and God would protect Israel. He had bad kings, or kings that would just like do whatever it took to keep the nation from invading, from taking Israel over. I'll do whatever I have to to keep my job. I'll do whatever I have to to be your friend and not your enemy. Like, that was kind of how it would work. Like, for example, this King Ahaz sold stuff out of the temple to support Assyria so Assyria wouldn't invade. Now think about that for a minute. Hey, I'm going to sell religious artifacts out of the temple so this other foreign power won't invade. How do you think God saw that one? Right? Let me take the sacred artifacts, the key to our relationship with God, and give them to a foreign power or sell them for money to keep a foreign power from invading rather than trusting God to protect Israel. Sounds good. Not exactly a good strategy. Well, God sends Isaiah to talk to Israel about this plan. This is how he used the prophets in the Bible. He would send a prophet to go, here's where you're messing up because they couldn't see it for themselves. You know, like a person in your life that gives you relationship advice when you're screwing it all up. You know what I mean? That's a prophet. Prophet comes in and says, Israel, here's the deal. Now, verse, now chapter 58 of Isaiah the eyes, the person, this is actually a first person speech from God through Isaiah. So this is God talking through Isaiah. It's not Isaiah talking about God, it's God talking through Isaiah. You'll see what I mean in a second. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people, so he's instructing Isaiah, announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their ordinance, the ordinance of their God. Excuse me. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do they fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Quote unquote. Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all of your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I chose a day, a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call that a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Now, he instructs Isaiah, go tell them what they're doing wrong. Go tell them their sin. So you get typical Old Testament writer, go tell them this, say it again. It's redundancy to draw, drive them a point, right? It's a seconding sentence. He says, go tell them they're about their rebellion. Tell them about, the, about their sins. He's driving home that emphasis. And then he kind of goes, he says, don't hold back on them. Declare that they are wrong in verse 1. Then he makes his case. And when God is making a case against you, you are in trouble. When God himself is laying out where you've messed up, that's not a good day. Right? He says, they seek God every day as if they're practicing righteousness. Those of you who are too old to know, or not old to know this, as if, 
right? That's a 90s thing or maybe even an 80s thing. I don't know. As if, like as if that's true. As if they're practicing righteousness. As if they never stepped away, they want me on their side. So God's looking at Isaiah going, as if they're really following practices I've asked them to follow through. All they want is to have God on their side. What's he, what is their sin? What is their rebellion in this passage? They're doing the right thing for all of the wrong reasons. They're practicing certain things. They're trying to demonstrate to God. And in verse 3, they go, why didn't he notice that we're doing this stuff? They're practicing. They're following the practices. They're doing everything they're supposed to do. But he's, God's not responding. He's not answering our prayer. He's not delivering us. He's not protecting us. They're angry and complaining, and God's not doing what, God, what they want God to do when, he want, when they want Him to do it. That's what He's accusing them of. It's like they're practicing stuff as if they're really being righteous about this, and then they expect me to be on their side. As if. <laughs> In other words, God's saying, they want this stuff, but all they really want is for me to rescue them again. That's not the reason. It's the wrong reason. They're trying to manipulate God. If, if you hold your mouth just right and do just the right motion and just the right ritual, then God will show up. Bring the lights down low, bring in the band slow, bring up the music just right. Go to church every Sunday, tithe, go through the motions spiritually, have your quiet time. Do everything that you're supposed to do. Then your world still falls apart and what happens? You get mad. And you say things like, but God, I've been to church every Sunday. I give. I serve on that committee. You know, we love committees. I serve, I, I bring food to connection. I tithe. I've been faithful. I've tried to follow your word. I've had my quiet time for 10 minutes every morning before I go to work. Why is my life a mess? I don't approve of your timing and your plan and your response to my diligence here. That's what's happening with the people of Israel. They're going, hey, we've, we've sacrificed, we've fasted, we've torn our clothes and, and laid down in ashes and done all the stuff that we're supposed to do, but the Assyrians are still coming. What gives? And God goes, I can see their hearts. I know they still oppress their workers is the phrase in this passage, right? There's, in other words, they still treat the people who work for them wrong. They bicker and they fight, verse 4. They're still mean-spirited toward one another. In other words, they're putting on a religious show on Sunday or at worship, and the rest of their life looks completely unchanged. Yikes. You mean just doing the spiritual stuff is not enough? God says, is that the fast that I asked for? I don't think so. There's another passage in Isaiah where he says, ritual's not enough. Sacrifice is not enough. I don't want your sacrifices anymore. If the reason you're going to do this stuff is just to try to manipulate me to do what you want me to do, then I don't want it. You don't have to come to church next Sunday. I mean, if you're just going through the motions, God says, I don't need that. God doesn't need the Leonards of the world, to be friend-zoned and try to manipulate them until he says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. That's not how it works. Or even worse, to try to earn credit, enough credit with God and then cash in your chips when you need him the most. 
That's not, that's another commercial. That's not how any of this works. You ever see that one? Facebook on the wall, and she's like literally posting on her wall. You ever see that commercial? That's not how any of this works. That's not what, their heart is not in the right place. Their rituals are empty because they're making an effort to manipulate God and their regular life doesn't change. In Matthew 23, Jesus calls the Pharisees, he accuses them of the same thing. He calls them whitewashed tombs. You ever heard that passage before? He looks at the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders of the day, and says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs, real clean and real pretty on the outside and full of dead bones and decay on the inside. You really do not ever want God or Jesus to just evaluate your spiritual life, right? I mean, it's harsh. Those are harsh words. But one of the reasons they whitewash the tombs, I had never heard this before, but one of the reasons that the Jewish people whitewashed their tombs so you could clearly tell that it was a tomb before Passover, so you wouldn't accidentally touch it and become unclean. They would make sure, they would wipe all the dirt and the silt and the dust off and the mud off and get the tombs clean and clear so you'd know that's a grave. Don't touch it or you'll be unclean. They didn't even get pretty for pretty's sake. They made it pretty so you wouldn't sin. So you'd go through the next ritual. So that you would be clean to go to worship at Passover. Because <laughs> you were too blind to see that that was something you shouldn't touch. I'm thinking, where are all these tombs that they're walking by? How y'all doing? Oh, I'm unclean. You know, it's a weird picture. But they would wash the tombs so you wouldn't sin. So it's not just make yourself look, you make yourself look good on the outside, but you even do that for the wrong reason. You make yourself look good on the outside for all of the wrong reasons. And on the inside, you're still spiritually dead. That's why in Matthew 5, Jesus says, before you come to worship, go and settle whatever difference you have against somebody else. In verse 4 of Isaiah 58, He says, you still bicker and fight with one another. You're going through the religious motions, but your words are still wicked. The way you treat the people who work for you is still oppressive. You're terrible toward other people. And Jesus comes along in Matthew 5 and says, if you've got an issue with somebody, go make peace, then come to worship. Why would he say that? Does that mean, and even when you read Isaiah, does that mean that you have to, you have to get right before you can come to church, before you can go to God? Because when I read this, I start to think that way. It's like, wait a minute, does that mean I have to be good enough to go to church? Is that really what we're talking about here? Because that's the danger of this, right? You, you foolish folks, you're just going through the motions. You're just presenting yourself this way. You've got to do all the right stuff, but you've got to do all the right stuff for the right reason. Then you don't really need God. You can just come to God because you're good. That would be the danger that you could read into this passage. But that's not it. He's not saying you have to be perfect. He's saying you have to worship or want to worship or want to be in relationship with God for the right reason. Your heart has to be moving in the right direction. Not always perfect, but you get to worship, not got to worship. Anybody have to go to church every Sunday growing up because mom and dad said so? <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, yeah. I used to like Sunday night church because you could wear jeans. You don't know, you can really know what I'm talking about? Like Sunday morning church, you had to do the tie thing, and you had church clothes, and then you got home for lunch, and my mom was making lunch on Sunday. You put your play clothes on, which meant we don't care what happens to those clothes. But you can't go back out in the backyard in your slacks and your tie because then you won't be able to wear it the next Sunday or ever again. You know, 
He had to have this, you had to be a whitewashed tomb on Sunday morning, but then by 12.30 that afternoon, you could be in mud. They didn't care. You're outside. You're getting dirty. As long as you weren't still in your church clothes when you did this. That's why football at the Sunday school hour was always a bad thing. Grass stains on your pants. You know, like you had to wait. You had to change to go play, you know. But you had to go to church every Sunday because mom and dad drug you. And on Sunday night and on Wednesday, you went because you had to, not because you wanted to. And as good as that is, and parents, you should bring your kids to church. You should make your kids to go to church. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But it also sets up the, I have to go to church mentality. It instills in us, I go because I'm supposed to. It's what a good Christian does. I would argue that that is what he's talking about here. If you go because you're supposed to, you're a whitewashed tomb. If you go because you're supposed to, God looks at that and goes, yeah, 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 you're saying all the right things, you're doing all the right practices, but you're really practicing righteousness? As if. (laughs) Right? In other words, we get to go to worship, not got to. We get to see other Christians. We get to study the Bible. We get to sing with Will and the band. We get to put our heart before God and say, God, thank you. Say, God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for pursuing us. We get to focus on how amazing He is for the way He's pursued us and the way He loves us by sending His Son to die for us. That is, good. That is the news. That is good. We, call, we call evangelism good news for a reason. It's good news. Because let's be honest, if it was up to my dating strategy to find a wife, I wouldn't have a wife. If it was up to Leonard, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if it's totally up to our effort, do we really land the person? What I'm saying is, Charlotte is God's grace in my life. I have Charlotte because of God, not because of me. (laughs) Okay? The same thing is true in my relationship with God. The fact that we can even find God is grace in our life. The fact that we can follow God is the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. If it's left up to us, we're going to pursue our own thing that we love more. Or we're going to get it wrong. Or we're going to get the wrong focus. We're going to screw it up. We're Leonard. Or maybe worse, we're Sheldon. You know what I mean? Like, it could be bad. But fortunately, that's not how God makes it work. He wants to know that we want Him. Period. He's calling us. The expectation is that we would respond. In fact, usually when we sin, it's really just because we prioritize something we love more than God. Seminary professor put it this way. You can't the English major is going to hate this because it's a double, double negative. You can't not worship. I know I've probably said that in here before, but it's an important thing to get drive home. You worship something. It's just a question of what. You can't not worship. It's just which direction is your heart and is that worship focused on? Do you worship career? Do you worship your bank balance? Do you worship your significant other? Do you worship... Me, you know, like, do you, what do you worship is what matters. And that's what God's calling into account here. He's not going, yeah, they're just not good enough for me. He's saying their heart is not in the right place. They're trying to manipulate. They're only tearing their clothes and laying in ashes and making sacrifices. So I will do for them. So I will be on their side. You cannot measure your obedience to God through outward rituals and church attendance and tithing, and outwardly doing, doing good stuff. 
you measure your obedience by what you're looking for, by what you care about, by what you worship and what you love. That's where your obedience comes from. It comes from really understanding and embracing the gospel deeper and deeper and deeper. Not by doing one more thing so God will love you. Do you get that? It's not, oh, if I'm a, if I'm a better Christian, then God will love me. It's, I love God. Everything else takes care of itself. Look at verse 6 and 7 of chapter 58. God begins to spell out what he's, exactly he is looking for. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the throngs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light will shine, will, shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. What in the world was all of that? He shifts gears from this is what they're doing wrong to this is what I want. For you to demonstrate me in the way that you love and treat others. To not oppress to take care of the poor, to take care of the homeless. In other words, it's, this goes back to what I was saying a minute ago. You don't do all that to get something from God. You do all that because you got something from God. If your heart is in the right place, you will want to sacrifice. You will want to serve. You will want to love the unlovable. It will come out of who you are. It's not the, it's not the other way around. It's not go do this stuff and then God will love you. It is, he says in verse 9, I think, then your light will break forth. Now, what's he talking about? Does that mean, okay, now I, now I sign off on you? No. He, what, he mean, what does light do? Light reveals, right? So he says, when your sacrifice, when your love and devotion produces fruit like this, then my light will shine on everything. When we're loving towards other people, when we're kind and generous towards those we don't necessarily like or care for, the light of God breaks forth in that action. Not the other way around. Not, I'm going to shine light on you because you did this stuff. I'm going to shine light on the world through what you've done. Remember, he is the original audience, he is talking to the people of God through a prophet. He is telling the nation of God, anytime you read the Old Testament, it says the people of God are Israel, you might as well think the church. Because in the Old Testament, that's who the church was. God's people, the Israelites. So when the prophet says to the people of Israel, when you are kind, when you are loving, when you are gracious because of your love for God, then the light of God will shine on everybody else. 
then that's the message that writer we can carry forward and we can look at the church and say, when we're kind, when we're generous, when we're loving, when we help the homeless, when we help, why do you think we have 40 cans for 40 days during Lent? It's not just we need a campaign for Lent. It's because we're obeying Isaiah 58. We're sacrificing so that others can have. See, it's really easy to have a Lent sacrifice that makes you better. I'm giving up fast food for Lent. You know what I mean? Okay, that's fine. That's a legit challenge. You should do that. That's, that would be healthy for you. But what if all the money you spend on fast food during Lent went to providing food for somebody else? That's the next level. It's not just I'm giving up. It's I'm giving up. I'm redirecting. I'm sacrificing. I'm not spending money on coffee. <laughs> Who gave up coffee for Lent? Anybody? Kind of wacko would do that. Whatever I spend at Starbucks, I am now spending on people who don't have lunch. That's the shift. That's the sacrifice. He's, Jesus says, when God says, what am I looking for? I'm looking for a sacrifice that has an impact on the rest of the world, not just on you. See, what, their motive, what was wrong about their motivation is they wanted something from God for doing the ritual. They wanted God to protect the nation. They wanted God to bless them. They wanted God to do stuff for them. They wanted God to make Israel the best. S-E-C, no. They wanted God to do something for them. That was the problem. And so when we even practice Lenten sacrifices for ourselves, hey, I'll be 10 pounds lighter after Easter. When we practice our sacrifice for ourselves, it's the wrong reason. The prophet is telling people of Israel, when you sacrifice... When you fast, when you give up, when you, empty, when you empty yourself of your own agenda, your own priority, your own desires for me to do for you, that's when I'll listen. When you put that agenda aside, when you put your ego aside, when you put your pride aside and just sacrifice for me and demonstrate my love for you to others, then you'll see me respond and the world will see my light shine. That's what he's calling for. That's the sacrifice that's acceptable. But it's not acceptable because of what we do. It's acceptable because of why we are doing it. We have to empty ourselves of what we want. We have to empty ourselves of wanting to be trimmer, healthier, and wealthier. We have to empty ourselves of, look at me. We have to empty ourselves of that stuff so that God light, God's light can shine in and through us. Because if we're full of ourselves, if we're full of our own importance, if we're full of our own agenda, there ain't no room for the Holy Spirit. Because who's on the throne of me? Me! <laughs> so the practice, the purpose, the real purpose behind rituals, like fasting, the real purpose behind, like we do for Lent, but fasting in general, the real purpose behind the practice of giving financially the real purpose behind any spiritual discipline is it reminds us it's not about us. It helps us to empty ourselves of those things. When you give that money to the church and you go, man, that'd be a really good car payment. You know, like whatever, <laughs> whatever your own agenda is, when you write that big old check to the church, it can be painful. I got to tithe because I'm supposed to. I get that. 
But when you write that check to the church because you want to see the world know God, it's not as hard to write the check. And this is not even a money sermon. I'm just, I'm just I'm trying to give you a tangible example. What does it do? It forces, if I give up a portion of my income to the church or to charity or, to see, or directly to feed somebody, then in some level I am saying I am dependent on you to provide God. Because I could keep this for myself and provide for me. But my generosity puts me in a position to where I might need you, God, later to bail me out. Because I gave so generously. Could you help with that? God says, that is when... I just contradict myself. Do you see what I'm saying? Giving is an expression of dependence on God to provide. That's what I'm getting at. And does that mean this is not one of those, hey, if you give $1,000, God will give you $10,000. That's not what I'm saying. Because then that would be the wrong motivation again anyway. When somebody tells you that, it's like, hey, if you give more, then God will give you back threefold. Okay, then now why am I giving at that point? Am I giving because I want to give, or am I giving because I want back three, tenfold, whatever? Wrong reason. I'm giving so God will give me. That's not why. What he's saying in verses 11 is, then you'll see. Empty yourself for the sake of others. And that's been this whole Lenten idea. It's this idea that we empty ourselves of our own desires to be filled with God's light so that the world will receive God's light and love through His church. And we can stand in the way of that or we can participate in it. Not because we have to, but because we want to participate in the kingdom God has promised us we'll inherit anyway. In verse 11, this is why I picked my Bible a minute ago. I wonder if there's, I knew there's a reason why. I want to read verse 11 again because this is where God makes a promise. Anytime God says, hey, do this, nine times out of ten, right behind it is a promise of what he'll do. God tends to be a covenant God. He goes, hey, if you'll keep this promise, I'll keep my promise. And in verse 11, there's no exception to that. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like the water garden, like a spring of whose waters never fail. That sounds a little bit like Jesus, doesn't it? That comes what comes from me is a fountain of living water that will not end when he's talking to the woman at the well. You think Jesus knew Isaiah 58? I think so. What is he saying? That if you will live this way, if your heart's in the right place, if you will love others, then I, God talking, will guide you continually, satisfy your needs, even in your most desperate, most parched places. And you shall be like a water garden full of spring water that never ends. Just, God's going, just trust me on this. Live for others, empty yourself for others, and watch what I'll do. That's the promise. Not, if I do this, what will I get out of it? See the difference? Let's pray. God, we confess that we think we're number one. We love ourselves a lot. And in this Lenten season, as we come to your table, we humbly ask that you would empty us of our selfish desires. That you would empty us of our agenda. 
that you would empty us of our need to be the most important thing. Turn our eyes towards you. Make us aware of your presence in our life. But most of all, sink into our hearts the promise of verse 11. That if we sacrifice, if we empty ourselves, you will fill us in our most needy places. In Jesus' name.